Uh, but with that being said, and with that being said, with that being said, with that being said, I'm really thankful I, I got that chance to go play at K State. With that being said, with that being said, thank you all. With that being said, I am. <laughs> Nah, with that being said. Hey everybody, welcome to our Five as One podcast. And with that being said, uh, wanted to right away out of the gates start with thanking our sponsors. Uh, lots going on these days. Wanted to first off thank Fix Sports. Uh, the uh, premier sports performance facility here in Colorado Springs allows us to train the offensive line here in uh, Colorado Springs and Monument. So I wanted to thank the guys over at Fix Sports for all that they do. Um, secondly, wanted to thank ZOA Energy Drinks, the official energy drink of the XFL. And of uh, and with that being said, and uh, these have definitely kept us going throughout the season and uh, kept the guys uh uh, rolling with one of the cleanest energy drinks out there uh, to keep guys balanced and focused. Um, next sponsor that I just had a chance to to be at was uh, when I was out in Texas a few weeks ago at the O-Line Mastermind Summit is uh, Hoppensting Brewery, uh, voted the best brewery in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, six years running. Um, those guys over there are great. They've taken really good care of the uh, XFL champion Arlington Renegades offensive line and along with next door Vaqueros Texas barbecue um, family tradition since 1979 Trey and the guys over at Vaqueros have fed the O-line they've done a great job uh, keeping the guys up and rolling and, and really is, is some of the best barbecue so if you're in grapevine uh, go hit up Hop and Sting and uh, Vaqueros and then one of our newest sponsors uh, Ray Crowther who is synonymous with offensive line sleds bags shields uh, uh, one of the top companies in football performance and tip of the spear have created a blast shield that we use exclusively with our five is one training. So I want to thank uh, tip of the spear Ray Crowther for uh, supporting five is one training and uh, and the development of offensive line, whether it uh, be at the high school, college or professional level. And I have a feeling that there's some blast shields being uh, acquired for the XFL uh, this coming year. So excited to uh, use them. All right, episode 11. This one is pretty cool. I've got a really special guest on with us this week, uh, Tom Luganbill, who is a, uh, a friend from uh, many moons many years ago. Tom and I go way back to the original XFL in 2001. Tom was our um, quarterback's coach for the uh, first ever XFL champions, the million dollar game champions. And uh, Lugs, it is good to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, man. Um, thanks for having me. I uh, It's interesting just listening to you give a shout out to some of those sponsors and how they're so directly tied to the offensive line. And, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, and but some may not. And I think I, I love this. I just love this statement about the offensive line. It's the only position in any sport whose sole responsibility is to protect another player. Now, when you really think about that, I mean, how noble is it? Because everybody that's watching does not realize that. They see a pass. They see a block, they see a run, they see it come off the ball. They see a penalty, they see a, a flag thrown. But they don't think about it in terms of what the sole responsibility is as they're watching it. And, and I've tried, when I first heard that, I was like, like I tried to challenge it. I was like, all right, well, in basketball, what? No. Is there one in golf? No. Is there one in wrestling? No. It's only the offensive line. I, like, how cool is that? Well, I've said it before, and I've talked to you guys about the position. That's why I love coaching it. Um, mm -hmm. It's the only position in a sport that uses a ball that yeah. does not look at the ball. That right. I mean, I mean, okay, the center's going to grab the ball. He's going to make the ID. He's going to snap it. But, like, there's a trust factor that it's really not concerned with the football. It's concerned with, like you said, being a protector and yeah. with that being said, all those five guys have to act as one to be able to 
perform the job and the task at hand that they're not concerned. There's so much trust in the quarterback and the running back and the receiver yeah. and the timing of the tight ends that it's like, it, those are the guys that you want in the foxhole with you. And those are the type of men that you want to surround yourself with that are doing it for the greater good. And so appreciate the shout out. Um, yeah, man. It's a line world. And it's uh, I love the hat. It looks pretty good on you. That's right. It looks good on me. Right. Quarterback guy wearing an offensive line hat. I love that. I mean, that's the way it ought to be. Right. Much appreciated. Go ahead and uh, <laughs> hit the website up. If you want to get your five is one gear, we got shirts, hats, uh, sweatshirts, all that good stuff to get your offensive line outfitted. So if you're a quarterback <laughs> coach or a head coach, why don't you take care of the big boys and get uh, get some five is one swag for your big boys as the season gets going. Um, Lugs, uh, you have been around a lot of different stops uh, in this yeah. game and where it has taken you. I mean, you were a coach's son like myself, um, mm -hmm. Played at Palomar Junior College, went to Georgia Tech, Eastern Kentucky. We laughed about it last time we talked. What'd you say? Like, if there's ball, you've probably played there. You've probably been there. Like, you, you've had a lot yeah. of stops on your world tour. You know, I have. Is uh, you know, I, to be honest with you, it's interesting when you're the son of a coach. You you kind of realize that you could be moving every year. You could be moving every two years. You could be moving every four years, and that could be from birth to when they kick you out of the home, right? And to be honest with you, I was so fortunate growing up that my father had had a lot of success initially as an assistant coach and then as a coordinator and eventually as a head coach. So much of my upbringing, I'd only been in two places. I was in Tempe, Arizona, and I was in San Diego, California. So I didn't have to do all of that bouncing around, moving around, which can be so hard on the family. And you know it because you've done it a bunch of times and you did it with younger children. Right. And then. Um, Fortunately, moving on from there, I remember my dad just having a really bad experience uh, in his last stint as a college coach. And I was old enough to recognize it, understand like the intricacies of it. And then when I had a choice to get into the coaching profession, it was like, do I want to get into college coaching or would I rather go into professional football? Right. And I chose to go in professional football, but I also chose to go in a couple of different paths. You know, I've coached in the Arena Football League. I've coached in the XFL. I've been involved in NFL Europe. Um, I was in the Arena Football 2 League, went back into the XFL. I mean, I went to the NFL with the Cowboys and scouting. And so, but all of my stops, the one common denominator in all of them, I mean, I think this is really important, especially for young coaches, is they all were personnel-based. I had a real, I was taught at a very young age, you can coach and you can coach and you can coach. And yes, it matters. But if you don't have players, it's not going to matter that much. You got to have guys, right? And, and the better players you have, all of a sudden, the more of a guru you are. And the worse players you have, you just took stupid pills, right? So fortunately for me, and I think it's, I think coaches, some coaches fight that. And all they want to do is the X's and O's, and that's fine. And most of those guys are professional football. Some of those guys aren't in the X's and O's and don't want to coach, and they are in personnel full time. And then, you know, there's that guy, those guys that love the impact you can have on an 18 to 22 year old, and they're in college, even though with all the headaches, they're in college. I never wanted to do that side of it, although that's the side I've been living in now for the last 18 years in my role at ESPN. So you're right, I, I've been very fortunate to kind of touch a lot of different realms in this game. And and you've seen it from a lot of different vantage points as as a coach, as a as a son of a coach, as a coach yourself in mm -hmm. personnel and now in the broadcast booth where I, I had the same experience growing up as a coach's kid. And I was fortunate. I only had two moves like my dad was coaching at the University of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. He was there, had some great years. I mean, my dad uh, was an assistant coach and then he moved into administration, was in recruiting. And then we moved to Southern California. So I had the kind of one big move that I remember as a coach's kid. Yeah. Fortunately, I've put my children through way too many first days <laughs> of, of being the new kid at school. Um, yeah. and, and you and I are in a unique position right now. My son is a freshman in college. He's starting his mm -hmm. first year at the University of Kentucky and went through the recruiting process most recently this past year. And your son is a year behind 
Quaid's right. getting right into it right now. So at some point, same position too. Yeah, we. Hey man, <laughs> it, it's not the sexiest spot in the world, <laughs> but they. It may be the last spot that they're going to think about, but they always need one. So our sons are long snappers, and uh, the bus doesn't leave without the long snapper. You, you better have a guy that can get it done. And I was, I was able to do it. I, I was, yeah. average, I was an average long snapper. I was, a, I was an underside center. And I was going to do whatever I could to get on the bus. And uh, yeah. that was one of the things that I did in the XFL. I was the starting center and I was also the snapper. Mm-hmm. Now, there were some hard times when maybe it was an eight play drive and all of a sudden I'd yeah. have to snap and cover the punt. And then that D tackle there and punt safe. And that dude yeah. I've been, you know, scraping paint with for the last seven or eight yeah. plays all of a sudden sees me covering down on punt and has got me locked up on, <laughs> on, on missile lock. I had to keep my head on a swivel, but I realized how important that position was. And and we had the talk with my youngest son or sorry, with, with my oldest son. And now my youngest one's doing it too. And he said, he wanted to play college football at the highest level. I said, Hey buddy, I think you can too, but I got good news. Um, I think you can play, but the bad news is I think there's probably one spot for you at the highest level. And, and he was pissed, but eventually he kind of took to it and he loves the position. And you and I are now going through those same things, trying to find a spot for him. Um, we might as well jump into it now. How has the recruiting process been now for you as a dad and someone that's seen it from so many different levels? Like yeah. what advice could you give to parents or what would you do differently maybe as you're going through the process now? I, I think so much of what I've learned over the last 18 years and how recruiting has evolved and technology's gotten involved and the internet's gotten involved and changed everything, obviously. You know, when you and I were coming up, you know, you, you had your VHS tapes. And the coaches would come through in the spring and the high school head coach would hand them all of the tapes and then they'd put them in the recorder. They'd tape it and take it back to the office. I mean, just an arduous, brutal process. I think the one thing I've always shared and Quade, my son, has heard this because he's been at camps and combines with me since he was in sixth grade. And he's heard me address players and classes and, 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 and kids that are getting recruited and high profile guys. And the message has kind of remained the same. In today's climate, With the click of a button, you can be as proactive in recruiting as you want to be with very, very little work. I mean, at the end of the day, the number one thing you have to do first and foremost is make the very, very tough determination of being honest with yourself about what level of football you're capable of playing at. Listen, we all want to play at Alabama, right? We all want to play at USC. Not all of us are capable of that. Well, guess what? That's why there's different levels in major college football but they all give scholarships to some degree outside of division three, obviously in NII. But so once you get over that pride ego hurdle, then it's as simple as a Google search. And, you know, I tell parents and kids, listen, put together your profile of your GPA, what's your weighted GPA, um, your core courses, your test score. And I mean, the test isn't as big a deal now because now they're not even requiring it. But all, you know, some, some simple things, some recommendations, all of your contact information, how anybody who would want to get a hold of you can get a hold of you. That can be a one sheeter, right? That can also be a slate on your highlight video. So you can kill two birds with one stone. But I, I tell kids and parents, I said, go, go get on the internet and, and let's just say pick five programs that really interest you, all right? Whether it's athletically, whether it's the social climate, whether it's the location, whether it's the success of the program, whatever it is. And I can promise you, you can go on the internet and you can get either the cell phone or the email or the direct message on Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter for every coach on that staff, right? And you can personally reach out to them. And I and the, the phrase I use is be pleasantly persistent, all right? Um, you don't want to bombard because you're going to tune people out. Right. But, you know, little check-ins here and there and things of that nature. And what I ended up doing with so my son got into long snapping in like sixth seventh grade and he was actually way ahead of the curve and i don't know if you went through this but we went through a long snapping's not cool phase i want to be an every down position player i want to be a a defensive end or i want to be a defensive tackle and through the course of about 18 months to two years it became very apparent that he just wasn't going to be big enough to do that and the light needed to go on for him I think he knew it deep down. He was just kind of hoping. And so he, to be honest with you, and I didn't push him. I pushed him in relationship to reiterating how important it was because he was, the, he's been a long snapper for his varsity team ever since he was a freshman. 
And then he started on the defensive line as a sophomore uh, and as a junior. And now he's just purely a long snapper. The light came on and he got it. Well, what, what did we do this last spring? He started targeting every single program across the country, the ones that he knew he could play at, maybe a couple of pies in the sky that were close to proximity. So if we wanted to make the drive and go to the camp, no big deal. Mm -hmm. And he proactively would reach out and, and get in contact with these people. And I would say for every 20 programs he interacted with, 15 of them replied, right? Well, that starts a dialogue, right? That starts an opportunity to have some back and forth. And then it's, okay, well, are you having any specialist camps or are you having any high profile elite camps? Um, well, yes, we are. Okay, well, then you get the dates and you start to decipher, okay, some of these camps are going to overlap. I can't be two places at once, but you start to identify, okay, where do you want to go? And so, so for us, you know, in the state of North Carolina, as you know, completely oversaturated state of universities. Right. I mean, you have four power five schools in an hour and a half of each other. And then you have multiple group of five schools. And then you have multiple FCS schools. And so we live in Charlotte and, you know, we decided we were going to hit Furman. We were going to hit Elon. We were going to hit App State. We were going to hit ECU. Uh, we went to Wake, um, drove down to Georgia and just hit a bunch of different spots. And, uh, and now NC State's kind of come into play a little bit. But it was, to be honest with you, it was his doing. It wasn't me. And not to knock the coaching staffs who need a long snapper that weren't going out of their way to reach out to him because they have a big board. I get it. But it wasn't as if he had App State's been really the only one that kind of proactively started a dialogue with him. Everything else been, has been created by him. But the point I'm making is if you're going to sit back and think that they're coming to you, that's a very small percentage of the recruitable athlete. I know that uh, the college landscape has completely changed over the last couple of years. And you and I spoke about this before, mm -hmm. like recruiting is very different for high school kids. There's not as many opportunities and the transfer portal is a real thing. That's hurting yeah. kids that are developing a little bit later. Um, and that's one of the things like in my world, in our world, you may like a school, but they're just going to go grab a kid from another institution, maybe at a, uh, a smaller school, pull them up. And, you know, whether it's an ACC school, they're going to grab one from, you know, a Sun Belt, And all of a sudden now that kid's snapping or starting or playing mm -hmm. and it's a plug and play type of deal. So you always just need to be realistic. You may love a coach, you may love a school, but that coach is probably going to leave by the time you graduate. Um, yeah. And there's going to be changes on the roster every single year. I mean, it's amazing to see how much turnover uh, that the college game is really becoming the professional game right now. And I've been coaching pro ball for 10 years, whether it's, you know, the Canadian football league, whether it's the XFL or the USFL, I've had a number of different stops and, you know, you've coached at the professional level and done mm -hmm. scouting at the pro level. And I wanted to kind of spin this back to our connection when we first were together in the original XFL, your dad, Al Luganville was the head coach. Um, mm -hmm. And he had been, uh, a very successful coach in NFL Europe uh, for the Amsterdam uh, Admirals and mm -hmm. uh, had had a ton of success. You were actually over there, right? Weren't you coaching on that on that staff also? I, I was on that staff, but in personnel um, okay. as as a quality control. Initially, I coached a position during training camp um, in both 95 and 98. So the first year back of NFL Europe was 95 and then 98 was the year we had Kurt uh, Warner and Jake DeLome. Um, and that's then I think you were. Hey, hold on. That's pretty good yeah. personnel right there. Yeah, that's pretty good personnel, isn't it? It really is. Um, and uh, and I think you were at Ryan at that time, right? I yeah, was. You were I playing for Galen Hall. Yeah, I was yep, with Ryan Fire and Galen Hall. I spent uh, yeah. a season there as a player, and then went back to kind of knew my my career was winding down, but I was going back trying to get a coaching job. And so they kind of grabbed exactly. me as the emergency guy um, when I went back a couple of years later. So I know all that circle and the how important sure. those developmental leagues were. And just kind of talk about, as we've discussed before, like the personnel side of it and mm -hmm. how much the original XFL, uh, when you were putting that roster together with those yeah. coaches and your background in personnel, what that was like in 2001 coming from an arena football background and NFL Europe mm -hmm. background where you'd seen some of these spring leagues have success before, but what, 
what was some of the most important aspects of putting a great roster together? So initially when I got into it, I was playing in the arena football league, going to grad school and doing personnel in NFL Europe. So I was trying to juggle a lot of balls in the air at the time. And I think the, and you'll remember this. So in the old NFL year, when I say the old NFL Europe, um, we had the, basically the open draft, the free agent draft. And then remember there were the allocated players. Correct. Yes. And early on in NFL Europe, the allocated players were really good players. Okay. But you didn't necessarily have a choice in who you were getting, mm-hmm. which if you have any competitive bone in your body, that kind of pisses you off. Right. Well, then as the league started unfolding, it kind of started getting worse because what was happening was when the NFL made the rule that if you place X amount of players in NFL Europe, you get to keep X amount more players in training camp longer. Okay. Well, guess what the NFL teams are doing? They're signing guys to their off season program that they want to make the team and sending guys to NFL Europe that probably weren't very good. So what we started to realize was if you do your, your study and your homework, on the guys that were in the free agent draft, you were going to have a better roster than if you took a roster of allocated players. And, and so what started to happen was, and this is what led into 1998, is the quarterbacks were really down, right? Because, again, if you could play and you were decent or you'd made a practice squad, they were keeping you there. They weren't sending you over there to play. Like, the early – NFL Europe, that was Paul Justin. He played a long time in the NFL. It was Jamie Martin, played a long time for the Rams. I mean, there were, there were a lot of guys that started to go away from that. And that was when my dad started targeting Kurt because he's sitting there going, well, I don't care if he's played in the outdoor game or the indoor game. I need somebody that's played, right? I want some experience. And I started, he kind of started liking this guy. And then he, and that's kind of where I got involved because I had been in the league at that time as a player and then transitioned to a coach. And, and then that's where I really started to get involved in, all right, how do we weigh making sure that the player we're getting allocated isn't worse than the player we're drafting? And that was a hard thing to do because you couldn't always control it. Fortunately, in, in Kurt's situation, we were because we get him signed by the Rams and the, the agreement was he gets allocated, but he goes to Amsterdam. He doesn't get allocated to a pool. He goes to Amsterdam. So then we figure from that point on, now we can build the rest of the roster um, through free agency. I found, and I learned this uh, through a lot of, I was very fortunate because I was a super young coach. and I was working with a lot of older coaches, coaches that are older than you and I right now. So the Dave Levies of the world, um, the Jim McNally's of the world, you know, some of these, you know, especially offensive line guys, defensive line guys. And what I started to realize is if you're in any type of free agent type of draft building a roster, you better research injury history. If a guy has a significant history of being injured or multiple injuries and he can't seem to get out of the training room, don't get teased and enamored with what you see on tape because it's not going to be there full time. He's got this history of that. And we really started, while we may have loved a guy on tape and we loved the way he produced, he couldn't make it through a season for three weeks. And, and so, that's one of the things, it's such an irregular calendar when you deal with the spring football seasons, when you're dealing with NFL Europe and then the XFL, where guys are coming into camp, it's January. And all of yeah. a sudden you're being thrown into it and you've got a shortened training camp. You need to get guys healthy. You need to get them. But you also are trying to evaluate them. And that's yeah. what's going to be unique about year two at the XFL. Now we've got a sure. that's coming back year two. We know mm-hmm. what we have instead of just throwing a whole team together, which is what yeah. you did a lot of times in NFL Europe. There were only a few guys that would come back for a next year and they sure. continue to chase the dream. And you'd like as a coach and as a scout and as a personnel department, Hey, we know what we have in this guy. Yeah. Familiarity. Reliable. Yeah. But then you also need to find those fresh legs, the young guys who are hungry and they're able to they're back in that NFL window and they're chasing it. And that was one of the things that I thought was unique with what we did in 2001 with the LA Extreme team is that you had a ton of guys that had been in the league and they were fresh to try to get back into it. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, what's going to be unique now and in, in going into 2023-2024, this next XFL season, is we've got guys coming back or guys that maybe have gone to the NFL, mm-hmm. made a team, gone on the roster, might have gotten released. Now we're going to be able to, can we bring them back and create some continuity? Or yeah. do you just say, I'm going with the younger guy and it's hard to let a, a vet go, but let's make sure that those guys stick and st- so we called what you referenced in LA, we called that the, 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 the three tiers of a supplemental professional football player. The guy that was right out of college that did not make an NFL camp, didn't make a CFL camp. Maybe he made it to camp, got cut in week one or got cut after minicamp. Then there was the guy that's young, probably 26 or less, has made a practice squad, made an active roster for three or four weeks, but has spent most of the time on the street. Then there was the guy, and back then this is more true than it is now, that was a four-plus vested year guy that became a salary cap casualty. Now, he might have only been 28 years old, but if talent was equal and he's here and a guy two years younger costs less and the talent's the same and he's here, this guy's getting cut. Well, he had a lot of gap. Perfect example, Ron Carpenter. When we had Ron Carpenter. Darnell McDonald. All right, even though Darnell was a knucklehead, he had a four-year vested deal, but he was young enough and productive enough to be a great player for us. Um, So we always looked at it from that perspective of that's how we're going to build this thing through through the draft. And and, and to really give you – this was something we were always real proud of, and you know this. Um, But that first XFL draft, and my dad was really smart about it, is we knew we made good decisions. We also knew before we went to camp that other teams had made bad decisions. And uh, full disclosure, the coaches that were in NFL Europe that joined the XFL had huge advantages because guys like Jerry DiNardo, Rusty Tillman, some of these other guys had not had to build a roster from scratch out of a pool of players that they know nothing about. We knew everything about that pool of players because it's what we had been dealing with in the Arena League in, in NFL Europe. So we go into training camp. We're not two weeks in. We get a phone call. Hey, uh, you interested in making a trade with us? Blah, blah, blah. Well, our answer was, yeah, we're interested in making a trade, but we don't want a player. We want your first pick in, in next year's draft. Uh, make a long story short, that happened three times during training camp that year. So we got three first round draft choices from other teams for a player that we traded them. Well, we don't realize it, but fast forward, we win the championship. So now, just like the XFL draft is now, it's one through eight, and then it was eight through one. It's a serpentine deal, right? So here we are coming off of the championship because we had done a good job in offseason personnel, and we've got four picks in the first round, and because we won it, we're the first pick of the second round, right? And so to your point, then you start making decisions about how many of the older guys stay. How many of the, the new crop of guys that are coming into that open draft pool are going to be better than maybe what we have? Who, who improves us? Now there's a sample size to work with. Like instead of what you guys are doing with this last fall is it's all brand new. You think, you know, you don't know until you get there. So for example, for you guys, the quarterback position was up and down the whole year. You didn't have stability there, right? You may have thought you did going into camp, but then it doesn't work out that way. So you learn from that and you figure out the potholes and things of that nature. But I, I just think that in a free agent type of league, the more time you spend on it, and that's why it's really important that the assistant coaches in leagues like the USFL and the XFL and all that stuff are full-time year-round. Because I know when we were back doing it, we didn't have – we had an off-season, but we were watching tape every day. Preseason NFL tape, NFL Europe tape, a, uh, Arena Football League tape, CFL tape, all the time, all in preparation for two free agent drafts. No, and that's that's a huge part of where we were a year ago because I had just coached in the USFL. USFL, a year yeah. Ago. So I was able to, for those guys who had not re-signed in the USFL or had maybe gone to an NFL team, they were free agents. And so I had an inside track and I ended up grabbing a couple of guys that I had had in the USFL or I had familiarity with. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our staff 
had that background also. So we were yeah. very fortunate. And like you said, the quarterback position was one that was a little bit rotating. We didn't have one lead horse. We kind of went with a two quarterback system with yep. Floater and Plitt. And then, you know, it didn't really mesh. And then we ended up grabbing Luis Perez. And right. that's what that was the final ingredient with what we needed in Arlington to just create some stability. A guy that's been around Oh yeah, single spring league and been in the NFL camps and been around. And I went to the Denver Broncos practice this past week and I'm already looking at guys to see who's out there um, mm -hmm. or the guys that want to go get film to play in the XFL compared to signing a futures contract and sitting around from February to They're May. better off playing. You're, you might They're better well off playing 10 to 12 games of film. Yep. Bet on yourself instead of just masquerading as an NFL player in the offseason. Yeah. Because you really need the film. And now I I want to say we have over 130 players that have had tryouts with NFL teams. Oh, yeah. I want to say 30 or more have signed NFL contracts. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing guys right now get picked up in the first week of NFL camps because they need the vet. Maybe mm -hmm. the rookie that they picked up that was an undrafted free agent. Maybe he's not panning out already in those OTAs in the first couple of weeks. Let me go grab that guy. That's a two, three year. Yeah. The two tier guy that I now. talked about. And exactly. Tier two, yeah. and, and they're, they're that next level. They just played in the XFL. Hey, they were an all league caliber player. They've mm -hmm. been in it. They know the system. They know how it operates. And so though, I think those are huge pluses for the leagues like the XFL and the USFL, which you know it, you see guys every year make a roster because they bet on themselves, they go play, mm -hmm. they get great film, and they're ready to go. And we're done in May. Our championship game was second week in May. They can go get picked up in OTAs. They're training, and they're ready to go come August when training yeah. camp hits in late July that I think it's a great opportunity. I did it myself. I played in NFL Europe. I played in the original XFL with you, won a championship, turned around, and, you know, you just keep trying to chase the dream. And if, if now with all these viable options to continue to play in the spring, it, it's really great to see the development of the game, especially on the offensive line. Guys that oh, just need to play. And no you can doubt. do all the drills you want. You can do all the off-season workouts. But you need to play in games, and that's what mm -hmm. I think our league is so great, and you saw it. You saw guys really uh, flip the switch when they played in those first couple games, and you're still trying to figure out your way. And then oh, man. week four, week five, that group meshes and gels together. And when we were talking about previously, we had uh, Tommy Maddox on, and we had Frank Leatherwood and Josh mm -hmm. Wilcox, and you and I got together, and we had a big – kind of a uh, um, reunion visit and we're going to splice some of those um, um, anecdotes into this, uh, <laughs> into this podcast. But when we were able to uh, stabilize the offensive line, we had a really good crew and guys that are, were vets. That was the reason that I think we won is because you guys did such a great job as a coaching staff and as a personnel staff, finding those guys that had that experience with the healthy combination of the fresh out of college, fresh legs, the right. explosiveness. And that was really fun to see that team come together in 2001. And then I put myself right back in the same shoes 22 years later, all of a sudden I'm coaching in the championship game. Like it's, it's exactly the same. Can't I'm believe it. I know. I'm just sitting in a different chair and this <laughs> thing worked out. So it was yeah. a blast just to be able to, you know, talk to you with your experiences with being in the league in 2001, being a commentator in 2020 before the league shut down before the pandemic. And now mm -hmm. here it is three. And now it's going into the fourth season of the XFL. Man, this is cool to see the development and the opportunity for guys to do well and how much the XFL, I think, has has really changed the game. And, and we talked about this last time about how much the access people are seeing from the XFL because it's groundbreaking. You're getting sure game interviews. You're get you're getting the insight on the sideline, putting a microphone in front of a guy when he makes the game winning catch, or you know what ends up having a turnover in. And it's like the raw emotion that you see as a commentator, you saw as a coach and as a player. And so you've got yeah. great insight to all this. You know, it's interesting. So in 2020, I was on the field as a field analyst in this last spring, I was in the booth. And and I remember because 
whether it's college football or the National Football League, if you're a fan of football and, and, and you're sitting on your sofa or you're in a bar, or you're in a hotel, or you're doing whatever, and you're just watching football and something goes wrong, right? Or something happens between two plays or a coach makes just a gut call and it backfires, right? You're sitting there. You so badly want to be in that headset. You so badly want to hear what's being said from that coach to that player. And in 2020, I had um, Kevin Gilbride was the head coach at New York. And he runs a fake punt on his own 47 on like fourth and four or something like that. And I'm standing right next to him. And it hits. And Mike right in his face. Coach, what led to that decision? And having him work through it. He didn't necessarily want to do it because it's right. invasive, right? I mean, that's the one thing about the XFL coaches have to temper that, right? They're not, they're not used to having to be open and peel back the curtain, but it was the same thing when um, a quarterback would throw a pick, right? Don't you want to know what the court, like you and I know what the coordinator or the quarterback coach and the players having that kind con- we know what that conversation is, but if you're watching on TV and you see that guy walking over the headset and he's sitting on the bench next to the quarterback and they're discussing it, we're putting that on air. And I think I, I wish there was less. I use the term paranoia because I think that applies best to coaches because, I mean, listen, it's, it's copycat league. It's a copycat game. We're all paranoid. We want to win. We have a competitive temperament. But it's one of the reasons why, you know, the NFL is often pushed back on it. College football is often pushed back on it. But I actually think you're going to start seeing more of it. And where I think you're going to start seeing more of it is on the, the official review side. And I remember in 2020 when they – when they presented what we were going to do and we as broadcasters were going to go, we went, this is going to be gold. And the officiating community, I think was scared to death because what they were worried about was that they were going to be exposed and what actually ended up happening. They actually became applauded because for the first time ever, the fan that thinks it's so black and white was able to sit back have a camera over the shoulder of the replay official looking at 20 different monitors, hearing what the rule is, talking back and forth with the guy on the field, seeing all the different things and boom, boom, boom. And all of a sudden the fan goes, oh my God, that is really hard, right? And you know what? It didn't give away a competitive advantage to either team. It did not harm the officials or the reputation of the officials. And it made the broadcast and the game better because now I don't want to use the term sympathy, but for lack of a better phrase, the fans sympathetic to the official, right? Because now they know why the call was made. So I'm hoping that kind of gets involved in, in, in college football a little bit more. We're already seeing some of the, the, the timing rules in college football are, you know, drawn a little bit from the XFL. Not quite as extreme, but they're going to quicken things up. Now, there, there's a huge part of that to humanize what people have not been able to see, all the yeah. inner workings that make a game go. You know, and and it's whether it's getting to know the players more, whether it's the coaching staff, and now to look at like what Blandino's got going on with the review and people seeing what goes into these games instead of just being a blind fan that's just going to say, "Hey, you're screwing my team because the call went against exactly." Us. You know, <laughs> let, let's hold on, let let's make this a little bit more human and see everything that goes on. The one thing from a coaching perspective that is difficult is because everybody wants the access. And when you're mic'd up or when there's a microphone on the field or you have players that are mic'd and all of a sudden the commentator starts saying, oh, well, guess what? I know that this scheme means this and they're about to run this RPO or they're going to have- Oh yeah, that was me. And it's like- That was all of us. That's you guys. (laughs) And it's like, as a coach- I know, like, great. Now, now we got to change our play call next week. Now we got to yep. change our cadence. And those are the things that people love having the access. But as a coach, you're pulling your oh, hair. Kills you. And oh. Do you. Do you really need to tell them what that play means? Do we really <laughs> need to? And, but I saw it as time went along because the, the people want to see the games. They want to see the inner workings. They love the the vocabulary and just the communication. Yeah, the terminology. Like, if, as long as you can get the background noise. You don't have to just pick apart the play call and say, oh, well, they no. have to do this and do that. It's just to hear the communication in the huddle, to hear the communication from the play caller to the to the quarterback or, you know, the call coming in to the middle linebacker. And as long as it's like background noise and it's not like the total focus of it, the yeah. integrity of the game is still under 
you know, is still kind of in that shroud of secrecy. So as a coach, we saw it was almost like the production value started to maybe pull back from just saying, hey, look, they're going to run this play before it even happens. Yes. And I think the other thing, too, that I started to become really, really cognizant of was when I heard a call go from a coordinator to a quarterback or I heard the quarterback calling it in the hollow at the line of scrimmage. And then I would hear the, the play caller, because remember, you have the, the radio and the helmet, and it would go all the way to the snap, which is different mm-hmm. than the National mm-hmm. Football League. Yes. And I'd hear, let's just say I'd hear June Jones go, you know, center field open, center field open. Well, I'm not giving away an X's and O's advantage there by describing what that means, but I am educating the viewer, right? Um, you know, or, you know, split zone, split zone you know, whatever it is. And, you know, I can sit there and say, Hey, this is zone. You guys have all heard that before, but here's what split means. And it's not a competitive advantage or disadvantage to anybody else. I tried to really kind of move away from, okay, well, we'd talk about it and we'd hit it, but more tried to get a little bit more into the theory of the game as to when you hear these phrases, when you hear this terminology, um, this is what you can expect to see. This is the lingo. This is the talk as opposed to, or, you know, something as simple, this is crazy. And you know this because you're an offensive line guy. I always find it fascinating how little folks identify or realize in the game of football, if they're not in the profession, that it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game in the box. If they have more in the box than you have to block, all right, and we're running the football, we're in a bad play, all right? It, it, and it's, it, it's that, like, sometimes it's, it can be we overcomplicate things. But sometimes it's simple math, right? I mean, it's crazy. And that was one of the things I thought we did a great job with throughout our season. It evolved and we found a way this past year to give quarterbacks the freedom to check plays based on a number count. And when right. we were when we were together in 2001, I thought we were one of the best, if not the best offenses because Tommy Maddox did such a great job of taking what the defense presented to him. And you guys as coaches helped put a package and a system together that if they're giving us a certain numbers advantage or if we have a personnel advantage based on what we've done formationally, then go ahead and take it and stop trying to force plays against bad looks on defense right yeah you know and that you know we talked about it last time just about how you create a system that fits your players instead of making your players learn something that you've done as a coach just because that's the way we've always done it right have an open mind into let's create a system that we do together that's what makes I think Andy Reid so special in today's era of football this guy was born out of the west coast offense womb for 40 years and poof, number 15 rolls along. And he's going, well, these guys aren't coming up the way they used to, right? They're not playing under center. They're, they're not dropping three, five, five rhythm, five, two shuffle, whatever. That's not what they're doing. So look at the Kansas City Chiefs. They look like a college team. I mean, they really do. When you watch them, if you didn't know you were watching an NFL team, they, you look like you're watching college football. So I, I think you're, you're so right in that regard. And the, and the good coaches, I think, that can remove their ego and say, hey, this is what we have. What do they do well so we can accentuate the strengths and mask the weaknesses? And, and and with that being said, like making, you know, when you go into a team and you don't really know what you have personnel-wise, you think you know, but all of a sudden mm-hmm. guys are going to rise to the top and, you know, sure. things happen. There, there's a continual evolution of a roster. And I think that's one of the things that where you see you, you make reference to the Chiefs right now, like there are periods throughout the week that the players will be able to bring, hey, what about this play? What about this motion, this shift, or yeah. this personnel group that when you you kind of start peeling away the layers and, and you look at the documentary and you, you look at what Mahomes was able to do this past year with within their incredible season is that there's player driven concepts and they are putting in things that they believe in and the coaches are like well who are we to take it away from them and they put their expertise on it and 
those guys are playing free. And when you have a roster, when you have something like that, and I felt like we had that in 2001. And yeah, I think we, we grew into that at the end of 2023 in, in Arlington to where it's, it, you know, you, you put all the concepts in a training camp, but man, here's what we're able to do this week. And here's what our personnel and our roster is able to do. And that's going to shift week to week all the way throughout a season. Well, it's interesting because with that being said, you and I worked for a guy by the name of Dave Levy, who's our offensive line coach in 2001. He also happened to be the offensive line coach for the San Diego Chargers in the heyday of the Air Coriel days. Dan Fouts, John Jefferson, you know, you know, Kellen Winslow, the whole thing. And I would sit in staff rooms and we would be doing stuff throughout the week, getting ready for whatever our game plan was or whatever the, the game was. And we would start talking old stories because, you know, you always want to get the stories from the old coaches, right? He'd be like, Tommy, he goes, when we were in San Diego, we had about four running plays, had about eight to 10 pass concepts out of, I can't even tell you how many formations, personnel groupings, shifts and motions. And people thought we reinvented the game. All we did was give it window dressing. And I kind of think, and he had a big influence on us that year in 2001, because if you recall, Essentially, every single play in our playbook was one word. It had the run, the check, or the protection, and the play all built into one word. And it was everybody's responsibility to remember the concept. So it didn't matter if you played X, Y, S, Z, or whatever, F, what have you. You knew the concept. So if Y got hurt and X had to come inside, no big deal. You've memorized the concept. But we didn't have a lot of plays. We just formationed people and we shifted in motion. I remember we did, Jim Barker was our offensive coordinator and he's goofing around like one week and he goes, do you, I don't know if you even remember it so far back. We had Rose and Lily. It was our staple five-step quick game. And we had the blitz slant to the boundary. We had the over route from the slot. We had the option route to the tight end and the go on the outside. And we ran an entire series where we ran that one play out of like six different formations and ran no other pass plays the entire series. None. Now, if That's you're watching it. it on tape, yeah, if you're watching it on tape and you're just watching, you're going, okay, blah, blah, blah. You'd have to sit down and go, wait a minute. All these guys are going to the same spot. It's just a different guy every time. And that's how we got people. And just hearing him talk about those days with the Chargers, everybody thinks that they're reinventing football. And it was simplicity made to look complex. How'd you think the football started at the beginning of the season, Luke's? in 1.0 as opposed to what you saw in, in the second and third generation of it? Dude, almost identical. It's so hard to have four and a half weeks of camp and then have no preseason games and bam, you know, it's live. And the most difficult position is, as you know, the offensive line. And in 3.0 that we just finished up, I thought the first three to four weeks, everybody was just trying to be the team that didn't make the mistake, right? Because it was just – and then all of a sudden – Teams started to get a pretty good feel, and the football started going good. And then if you notice, the scores, instead of being 21 to 18 or 22 to 16 or 17 to 13, were now 29-26, 34-31. Um, and I just thought that was really reflective of teams just kind of figuring it out, hitting their stride. And um, But I thought it was very – I mean, look at, look at us versus – Look at us versus San Francisco, that shit, that bad San Francisco team. Right. <laughs> and we go up there right? and lose to that team. Yeah, we were terrible right. in this opener. Oh, yeah. my goodness. I think our first, we, play, we I think our first, first play, we ran like a boot. Tommy's out on the edge. I think it's like sack fumble. It was like a hot mess to start the season. Like, oh, my God, we're terrible. <laughs> you remember that, Tommy? Well, I, I think the funny thing is, is after the after San Francisco and after Memphis, like your dad called me in and was like, "You're gonna, you either need to play better or you're gonna get bitched." And you know, I think I think that's the funny thing looking back on it that you're like. You know, I look at this year, and I'm glad they finally made it for a season. And yeah, but it kind of pisses me off because I was the only MVP that <laughs> ever ever had. But Lugs, how how was it like 
putting an offense together because uh, you had, you know, your dad's kind of a defensive coach. Yeah. Jim Barker brought in some CFL because we had a, an innovation that I don't know people really remember. We could use one guy in forward motion like the arena football and like the CFL. Yeah. And I remember our tight ends just murdering some guys on the line of scrimmage with forward motion. But yeah. how was it putting the offense together with so many different collaborative minds? Well, first of all, I remember I remember telling Josh Wilcox that we were going to be able to block the end man on the line of scrimmage while he was in motion. And the look on his face, <laughs> it, was just, it was brilliant. But you know what? I think, and Tommy, I think, would agree with this, because I think you guys carry this over with Mike Malarkey at Pittsburgh. Between Dave Levy and, and Jim Barker, I think the one thing that those guys did a really good job of is it wasn't that we had 500 plays and 35 run plays. We had a handful of things. It was just all run out of window dressing. It was funny how what I took from the XFL helped me in the NFL because of what we did. You know, I think that they were um, trying to do this and do that. And you know, I was like, crap, they're giving us eight yards. Let's take it. We won that because we had the most talent. We mm-hmm. had talent at the right positions. We had talent. We had a great offensive line. We had receivers that, I mean, Jermaine Copeland, how he didn't ever make it in the NFL because. I know it. I mean, he's he won the XFL. He won the Grey Cup. He won all that stuff because he knew how to play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think your dad was so good at, at recognizing this guy might might not be this or might not be that, but he knew how to play the game. Football and and, and we had yes, yeah. we had a that was lot, Jeff Russell. A, yes, we had a lot of players that knew how to play the game. And I I, I tell people all the time, some of the best talent I had was on that team. And I remember our very first offensive line meeting. You show up. And there's a playbook sitting on your on your table. You got a line piece of paper, you know, line pad of paper. You got a pen ready to go. And I open up this playbook, and it's all these boxes with circles, but there's no defense. There's nothing. <laughs> it is a blank playbook. And I was like, Coach, where's all the plays? He's like, Oh no, no, no. You guys are going to draw it. You're yeah. going to draw it. You're going to make the calls. It's going to become yeah. our offense because we are going to put this in together. And I thought that was the smartest thing ever. So they kept blitzing us. Remember, San Francisco kept bringing the heat. And we're counting them. That game's over. Over, And they keep pressuring. And and he's in the huddle. He's like, boys, we're running toss, but it ain't going to be a run. He's like, we're going to run stock and go with the Z. And he runs toss. And and she, he runs a little (laughs) toss pass. And that game just it exploded. I remember Wilcox, you and I were pissed because those guys are like, Trying to take shots at us, and it's like, oh yeah, we need to get, we need to get this game. Over. I never got pissed. What are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know it's interesting because you know Tommy, you guys have all referenced it tonight. Just how much everybody enjoyed each other, and how much fun they had, and and I think a lot of that the camaraderie that's built when you're you're all in one location together, whether it's on a bus, on a plane, or you're living in the same housing complex. Um, and I, whether it was you, Jonathan, whether it was other guys across the league, when we would go get ready to do our broadcast, they would all echo the same things like, man, these guys are fun to coach and they're happy to be here. And they come in with smiles on their faces. And like that really resonated with me, you know, because especially if you appreciate the game and when you lose the game and the game gets taken away from you and then you get to play, there's an appreciation that comes back, you know. And so I think that from 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0, that's one thing that I think it remains steady. And, and that's the thing where you see guys playing free. And I think that's yeah. where we were able to take that and exploit defenses because you had done such a great job personnel, putting that roster together and guys were able to play free instead of having to memorize and think while they're trying to play. Instead play, of yeah. just letting their ability take over. And so it was a blast to be able to play in that offense. It was fun. And I know we've talked about it and and it was 
it was really a fun time and to be able to fast forward now to do it the second time around uh, was an education from a coaching standpoint because I think once we created that uh, opportunity for the players to have their own investment in the system and to be able to put their staple on it. That's where off our offense really took off at the end. Sure. of the season. And we were playing the best ball we could in the playoffs at the right time. And some people would say, man, how, how does a four and six team get in? Well, you got hot at the right gotta, time. All you got to do is get in. And then, yeah. you know, whatever you did in the past, it doesn't matter. You see those wild card games. All of a sudden somebody comes from out of nowhere in the NFL where if in these spring leagues, anything can happen because the rosters are all pretty much the same. So much parity. And it's, and, and so it's much just in, empowering yeah. your players to be able to go out and play free. And that's why I love coaching for Bob Stoops. Bob's is one of the greatest just to, to, um, to learn from every single day. He said, guys, this is something that you're going to have great memories, have, have awesome relationships with these guys because you're not having to deal with the college headaches of the transfer oh. portal of dealing with recruiting. You know, everybody everybody <laughs> makes the same money in the XFL. I mean, the quarterbacks are making a little bit more, but everybody sure. else is making the same money and they're trying to get a win bonus. They're trying to get the yeah. playoff bonus. And so when you take all those issues out and guys just, it's really boiled down to the purest level of professional football. That's why I love coaching at this level. And it's been a lot of fun. And I know you've seen it as a broadcaster and in the booth. It's so much fun. I just, I have an appreciation for it. I have, you know, you mentioned something right there. It's just like, you got hungry guys. You're not dealing with headaches. It's important to them. There there's, there's a goal somewhere. They're a little bit more mature. They're probably a completely different guy than they were when they decided to come out early out of college and everybody told them, dude, don't do it. Don't do it. They do it anyway. And next thing you know, they're on the streets. So now they're refocused because they are a little bit more mature. They realize I just screwed this thing up. And there's something, there's something to that. I, I can remember vividly our practice. We lost three games that year. We were nine and three, two of the three, we lost to Memphis for whatever reason they had our number and they stunk and they kicked our tail. All right. Two out of our three losses. But I remember that Tuesday when the paycheck came, that was a different paycheck, man. And, and it yeah. was like, all of a sudden it was like, oh, okay. Because I think there is something to the, the, the common goal of the ultimate team sport. And that is winning. And when you won, everybody benefited, right? Everybody uh, reaped the rewards. And then when you didn't, it was dependent upon everybody to galvanize. And I think there's something to that with supplemental leagues like the XFL and and it's important and it makes guys so much more fun to coach, man. <laughs> oh, it, it really is. And and uh, this past year, being in the championship, um, I, I had uh, I had a couple people reach out. We kind of reconnected with some of the former players and guys on the staff. And, yeah. and I, had, I had someone reach out and send me kind of a replica XFL LA Extreme jersey that had my name on it and they're like hey here's something from 22 i was like are you kidding me and it came out of nowhere and then just a few weeks ago i actually had someone send me somehow they got their hands on it my game jersey from the championship game man this who would have had that i don't know that i can and not you no this was somebody from the league that somehow oh. it's out there and it resurfaced and so this is the original. it looks brand Someone's, new it's like game worn it's got like blood and snot and <laughs> stuff all over it and it was pretty cool just to see like how far this league has come how far yeah. it's evolved and now to be the spectacle what it is you've got some big name people a part of this to see danny and dj and redbird capital and espn and abc and disney yeah. it's like man this is really cool to see and to see it grow into year two and to see the opportunity and the genuine appreciation from the players and from the coaches yeah. and, and from everybody that's involved with this league for, you know, the commentators, the officials, yeah. the, the people working merchandise to say there's another option for professional football that's very affordable for mm-hmm. families that people are just football junkies. They just want to see the games and they want to be able to see uh, another opportunity for guys to be able to chase it and play the game. Cause there's no greater game than, than the game of professional football and the football in general. And like we said before, I love coaching the offensive line. 
and that selfless position that it stands for and it represents. And when you have guys that are playing for $5,000 and they can get an additional grand for winning it, that's not a bad living. No, you're not making millions, but. But you're not digging ditches either. No, no doubt. And you're doing something (laughs) that you're doing something that you're not going to get when you're doing the nine to five. And you have such a small window as a player. And that's why I think so many of us want to be involved with the game because we can't play anymore. Uh, nobody's calling us to play anymore. So we want to be involved in the game. So you're going to coach for 25 years or you're going to scout and you're going to broadcast because everybody wants that kind of team mentality. You want to be a part of Mm -hmm. something bigger. And when you have a team to cheer for, or you're a part of a bigger group, whether it's the production unit or the coaching Mm -hmm. staff or, you know, whatever it may be that's affiliated with it, it, it's great to see this game growing and the league's thriving and getting ready for another season 2024. Well, I think if, you know, the, the league, as it continues to grow, the thing that's going to be really fun to watch is how much incrementally better the players become each and every year, because they're going to start to see the writing on our wall, on the wall, as we discussed earlier, am I better off going and playing or am I better? And, and, and they're going to, there's going to be data now. There's going to be, well, wait a minute. More guys that played made rosters than guys that didn't play who made rosters. Right. And you're going to, I think you're going to start seeing agents and representatives start saying, Hey, listen, man, this is an important thing for you. And then as, as a result, the teams will all be better. The product on the field will be better. It's just not something you can wave a magic wand and happen overnight. It's not how it works. And with that being said, we're, we're excited that the, the league is growing. We've had a number of different showcases looking at players. As soon as the NFL makes their cuts, we'll have an additional draft to see who's out there, who's available. We actually just grabbed rights to NFL vets that are not currently signed. And so to okay. see where some of those guys are, are they going to try to tee it back up? And let's go play for a couple more, a couple more games. Let me That's go that see tier three get- guy. That's it. That that vet yep. that's that's on the street that wants to play that wants to get a little yeah. bit more time, and and so it's exciting to see the growth and the development of the league right yeah. now. And, and uh, Tommy, it's it's great to be able to revisit and talk about the league and where it is now and where you have seen it grow from 2001 yeah, when it was you know Vince McMahon and he hate me on the field and the TV <laughs> spectacle and you and I have talked about this before the ball was really good I think the show maybe tried to make it a little bit bigger and better when you've got yeah. girls in the hot tubs you got strippers in the end zone and the LA Coliseum in the hot tub and it's like, that's not the main event. It needs to be about right. the pure angle of football. And I think now ABC, ESPN, Disney has it because it's yeah. it's talking about the players, the coaches, the game, the product yep. on the field, instead of the rock concert that's going on around yeah. the game from 2001. I've always said that what sank the league was not the product. It was how it was presented on television. If you went to a game in person, it was awesome. I mean, it was a lot of fun. And I'd never talked to anybody that went to one that didn't have a great time. And that's what made the pandemic hitting the 2020 season so disappointing. Because credit those folks. And then for DJ and, and Danny and, and Redbird Capital for carrying it on. And, and I think really focusing on, okay, what worked? Let's carry that over. And then let's put our own stamp on some things in 2023. But that thing was rolling in 2020. And they had eliminated all the stuff that plagued them. And fixed all of that. The presentation was professional. We had the Monday Night Football graphics before they were ever on Monday Night Football. That's how they they launched them. And then you roll over, like I said, all of those positives into 2023. And it's good to see that part of it evolve so that the good things continue. And then you find ways, just as you do in the other other walk walk of life, figuring out, all right, how do we tweak this to make this better? Maybe we don't do this this time around, whatever it may be. And it's all about developing players and giving guys another opportunity to show what they can do. And uh, that's a big part of what we do with five is one uh, with our training, with offensive line development and wanted to just wrap things up and thank our sponsors one more time. Fix sports here in Colorado for allowing us to train our athletes there. Zoa energy drinks for keeping us uh, on our toes in the XFL. And, and with that being said, Hop and Sting Brewery and Grapevine, along with uh, Vaqueros Texas Barbecue 
and uh, tip of the spear, Ray Crowther for their blast shields and excited to see the development of all the guys that work with five as one this past uh, off season. Can't wait to see you guys balling out there on the field. Uh, there's continued training here in Colorado, California, Texas, and Georgia. So please hit the, uh, hit the website, see about training opportunities, and then please follow along on the, uh, on the podcast. We've got it on YouTube for the live video. Uh, we've got it on Spotify, uh, Apple podcast, anywhere that you can find a podcast you will be able to find. And with that being said, and, and, uh, Lugs, man, it is so great to revisit with you. Talk a little bit, yeah, man. Um, we, we had a little bit of chaos with our crew last time. We'll, we'll, we'll drop in some of the episodes, uh, from last time we were talking, but appreciate you rocking the hat and, uh, look forward to seeing you on ESPN coming up this year with all the college football games. You're going to be all over. Um, do you have kind of a primary market or are you across the country? No, I'm, uh, I'm with the same crew I've been with the last two years. Actually, my play-by-play Dave Pass, he and I will be going on 10 years together. Um, and we're essentially the way it works is you're, you're kind of, you're slotted as tiers, right? And so uh, we are essentially the ESPN or ABC crew, either at noon or 3.30 Eastern time every week. So we could have any conference and we could essentially have any time zone. I mean, we're rarely getting Pac-12. Sometimes we'll get the Pac-12 after dark or what have you. But uh, generally... Um, Is that the Pac-12 the, or the Pac-9? Whoever's left in it, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, yeah no kidding. It might That's be my Pac-7 conference, here man. Before we, get to, uh, <laughs> before we get to the end of August, man. Well, we can do a whole other podcast on that. I just got done, Jaime, uh, um, with radio and college football live, TV at ESPN, um, covering all of the media days. And, um, and I was, I was on the day that George Klyovkov at the PAC 12, the commissioner literally referenced the commitment that they had from Colorado and the president of Colorado reaffirming as a commitment in the media in Denver. And here we sit <laughs> now, man, I, I feel for you, brother. So, but yeah, I'll be all over in college football this fall. You bet. Looking forward to seeing you do your thing, bring great insight to the game and, uh, looking forward to reconnecting in uh, 2024 with uh, the XFL cranking back up. Hopefully we'll have some preseason scrimmages this year that don't get uh, canceled for ice storms or uh, uh, blizzards or whatnot hit us down in January in Texas. But, man, it is great to reconnect. Wish you all the best. Wish the best for Quaid and his season coming up this year and the family. And, uh, man, awesome to see you. Love you. Appreciate you, brother. Absolutely. Same here, man. Best to you and the family. Thanks, bro.